Well, good evening, friends. Please turn in your Bible to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 is found on page 1156 of the Pew Bible. And we're reading the end of this chapter, verse 35 to 41. Listen, this is God's word. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, back in 2018, on the very first evening after arriving in Bloomington, we were busy getting settled in. Kira was starting school the next day, and so we were in Target getting school supplies. And we could hear the rain on the roof of the store. And then minutes later, our phone started buzzing with a warning of a potential tornado risk. My wife coming from Kansas was well used to such things. But for me, I was wondering, is this my new normal? Well, thankfully, that was my only experience of a potential tornado here in Indiana But in one sense, storms in life are normal. They always take us by surprise, and yet they shouldn't. In the West, we have been living in a unique period of history, a time of great prosperity, not just for the few, but for the many. But in recent years and months, we have had to face disease with the COVID-19 pandemic, war in Europe, with the Russian invasion into the Ukraine, and now famine due to inflation and rising oil prices. Our world, or the Western world, thought that these were things of the past. No, they are all signs of the last days that we have been living in and have been living in the last 2,000 years. We live in a world of chaos, in a world of suffering. And so you and I frequently find ourselves in the midst of storms. And so instead of being surprised by storms, we need to be prepared for them. Well, how do people prepare? It's not by stocking food or toilet paper. Instead, you are to look to Christ. Look to Christ in the storm. For when you see Jesus as a powerful king who cares for you, you do not need to be afraid. You can trust him. 
So firstly, notice, listen to this eyewitness account that proves the power of Christ. When you're going through a storm in life, it's helpful to learn from those who've gone through a storm before you. And so it's no wonder there are support groups of various kinds for those uh, to help people for those who've gone through storms, some painful experience. Maybe it's cancer, maybe it's grief, or some other trial. Books by those who've gone through hard times also can be a help. Often movies are made of those who've gone through life-changing events, and they are described as inspirational. Well, here in our passage is the opportunity to learn from those who have gone through a storm that was about to take their life. And it's clear that it's an eyewitness account. Peter is the source for Mark's material in his gospel. And what's interesting in this account is the number of eyewitness details that really are not that important to the actual event. But as an eyewitness, you include them, for that is what you have seen. And Mark includes these incidental details like Jesus sleeping on a cushion or the fact that there were other boats with them as they started off in their journey. They don't add that much to the account except that they speak of the validity of this event. This event on the Sea of Galilee was no myth. It really did happen. C.S. Lewis was impressed by these details. As an English professor who was familiar with a variety of ancient writing styles, the Gospels stood out to him. And that's because the Gospels were not written like legends of old, which lacked details. Instead, the Gospels were filled with eyewitness details, which is more fitting in today's literature. And C.S. Lewis responds to those who speak of the Bible or of the Gospel as a myth by saying, and you have this in your outline, if he, that's the Bible critic, tells me that something in a gospel is legend or romance, I want to know how many legends and romances he has read, how well his palate is trained in detecting them by their flavor, not how many years he has spent on that gospel. I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them are like this. There are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modernistic, novelistic, realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this simply has not learned to read. As I said, Mark, he gets his material from eyewitness accounts, and it's mostly from that of Peter. And Peter would certainly remember this event on the Sea of Galilee. Mark is starting a new section in his gospel with this passage. He's already covered that Jesus is the coming king that the Jews have been waiting for, that he is bringing a kingdom that would begin small, as small as a mustard seed, but would cover the whole earth. His kingdom would grow by people hearing his word, leading to transformed lives. And then they would bring his word to more people. And so there would be this abundant harvest. But how is this possible? Think of the kingdoms of this world. And what do they all have in common? It's that of power. Consider the British Empire 
How was it so powerful? Well, it had these huge navies that were said to control the seas. The Roman Empire, it had a very powerful military to enable it to control Europe. Consider America's power. Its nuclear weapons have kept other world powers in check. Well, Jesus Christ, he appears weak. He's not rich. He doesn't have armies or navies or nuclear weapons at his fingertips. But Mark helps us see that he is powerful. And so in the next few passages, we see Jesus' power. And today we see his power over nature. After that, we'll see his power over evil, his power over disease, and finally his power over death itself. And as a result, this gives you confidence for you have a powerful king. Well, second, I want you to notice that Jesus leads you into the storms, verses 35 to 37. Now, it's quite possible that Jesus is already in the boat at the start of this passage. At the beginning of the parable of the sower, we read of him teaching from a boat in the Sea of Galilee. And that would explain this phrase that they took him along in the boat as he was, meaning Jesus didn't make any preparation. He was ready to depart. Jesus' ministry is exhausting. People were constantly wanting his attention. They wanted to hear him teach. They wanted him to heal the sick and to do other miraculous signs. This boat trip was a chance for him to get away from the crowd, to get rest. And so we read of him falling asleep. But Jesus clearly had another reason for taking his disciples across the sea. To the disciples, this would have been a routine crossing. This was a convenient way for people to cross the Sea of Galilee so they can travel and visit the different towns around the lake rather than having to walk around the Sea of Galilee. However, this day, it would not be a routine crossing. Jesus had a lesson for them to learn. The Sea of Galilee was a small lake. It's surrounded by mountains, and these mountains are separated by deep valleys, deep ravines, and wind would come from the south. And these mountains would force the wind into wind tunnels as it traveled through the valleys and ravines. And the result were these powerful and dangerous storms on the Sea of Galilee. And the scale of this storm is evident by the fact that four of those on the boat are fishermen, men who are familiar with the Sea of Galilee and with storms on this lake. And yet this storm takes them by surprise. It was no ordinary storm. Mark describes it as a great storm, even a whirlwind in some other translations. But this storm was no freak of nature. The one who controlled the storm was sleeping in the stern of the boat. He commanded his disciples to travel straight into the storm. And he often does the same in our lives. We often face storms. That should not come as a surprise. Peter would later write of this in his letter. He was probably remembering his experience in the Sea of Galilee. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, 
that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Christ takes us into storms. He causes you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So do not find it strange. Instead, recognize that Christ has a purpose. The other week at our time of sharing a prayer request, I was encouraged when Colin was asking for prayer, for healing for his leg, but also that this would be a time of learning, learning to rely on God, to give him grace. He recognized that he was in the storm, and he wants to learn the lessons that God is teaching him. And that's a challenge for each one of you. We believe that God is sovereign. Nothing happens by accident. Well, the storms that you find yourself in are God-ordained. And so they are opportunities for you to deepen in your faith in him. You are to trust him. You are to trust that he will give you grace to continue, even in the midst of difficulty. And he gives you that grace when you need it. Our latest audio book in the car is Corrie Ten Boom's The Hiding Place. And Corrie speaks of the reassurance that her father gives her when she felt it would be impossible to continue if he were to die. And she writes, Father sat down on the edge of the narrow bed. Corrie, he began gently, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? And she responded by saying, why, just before we get on the train. And her father replied, exactly. And our wise father in heaven knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run ahead of him, Corrie. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. So do not be surprised by the storms in your life, but know that Christ, he will supply you with the strength that you need to survive them. Well, thirdly, consider storms help you see what or who you have placed your faith in. Verses 38 to 39. How do this, the disciples respond to this storm? Well, we read of them panicking. They cry out to Jesus saying, don't you care that we are perishing? The disciples don't recognize Christ's purpose. No, they are afraid. They could only see the crashing waves. They could only feel the wind on their face. Ferguson writes, their mistake was to focus attention on their circumstances rather than on Jesus. And we often do the same. We are consumed by the storm and not able to look beyond it. Often we think that we're alone in life's struggles. And sadly, we allow the storm in our lives to tell us a lie that Jesus doesn't care. And so as a result, we doubt his love. Ferguson writes, we allow our faith to be diverted from its anchor in the cross and lose our moorings in the storms of life. This is wrong. Jesus does care. And not only had they doubted Jesus' care for them, they doubted his word. Jesus said, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. They doubted because of the storm that they would even make it to the other side of the lake. But Christ's word is true. They should have trusted in his word despite what it seems. 
But in their ears, the voice of the storm seemed more trustworthy than the voice of Christ. It was louder. Various storms come into our lives. We often respond in the same way, with fear. It might be an illness like cancer. It might be our finances. You're not sure how you will make ends meet. You may be afraid of losing a loved one, or you're being bullied at school. And these storms, they make us feel helpless. They reveal just how vulnerable that we are. And storms in life, they're like a truth serum. They reveal who or what you're really trusting in. And that's why Christ allows storms to happen. So you have to face the reality that you are in. Whatever it is that you're trusting in, it cannot help you. Whoever it is that you're trusting in, they cannot protect you. They cannot turn your storm into a peaceful calm. Now, while the disciples are panicking, what was Jesus doing? Well, he was sleeping. And this is a reminder of who Jesus is, that he is a man after the busyness of teaching, he's exhausted. He needs sleep. But he sleeps peacefully at the back of this sinking boat not because he's a deep sleeper, unaware of this storm. No, he sleeps, for he's no reason to panic. He's no reason to be afraid. Hughes writes, in this grand display, the opposites of weakness and omnipotence do not clash, but coalesce in a beautiful harmony, too magnificent to be the product of human imagination. Christ sleeps peacefully, because he is secure. We will see his power over the storm in a minute, but him sleeping peacefully demonstrates what faith in Christ looks like. You don't have to panic. You are secure. Even in the midst of the storm, you can have peace. I remember being involved in VBSs on the beaches of Ireland, and there was a chorus that we often taught the children, and it went like this. With Christ in the vessel, we can smile at the storm. Now, it is a little bit twee, but it is true. In the storm, you are secure because you are in Christ. He is your safe haven. No other will provide that security. So look to Christ. In him, you have peace. And next, we see why. So fourthly, you are to see the glory of Christ in your storms. Verse 39 and 41, Jesus stands up and he simply says a word. He rebukes the wind and the waves. It's simple. There's no need to wave a wand. There's no need to muster up his power. He just had to speak. And in a moment, everything is calm. Everything is at peace. Consider just how incredible that is to calm this large expanse of water. Children, the next time you're in the bath and you're splashing about, I want you to consider how long it takes for the water in your bathtub to calm down and flatten. And then realize just how much longer it would take for a large body of water like this sea to calm down after a storm. It can take days for bodies of water to flatten. And Jesus did it in an instance. That is the power of Jesus' words. 
We've already considered how Jesus rebuked the demon, and the same word is used for the wind. He treats it like a wild dog. He tells it to be still, and in response, there is obedience. Throughout history, there has been words that have been spoken that have changed history. For example, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Words spoken by Reagan that soon afterwards saw the Berlin Wall come down, bringing to an end the Cold War. Or words like, I have a dream, by Martin Luther King, which would lead to massive civil rights changes. These are powerful, life-changing words, but they pale into insignificance compared to these words of Jesus Christ and the power of his words. His words reveals his glory. The disciples are amazed by Jesus' words. They saw the glory of Christ as he demonstrated his power over nature. Often the sea is seen as uncontrollable. Man can do nothing to stop the sea. And so instead you hear of sailors and fishermen respecting the sea, and they become very superstitious regarding the sea and how they handle it. And King Canute expresses this well. Canute was a Danish king in the 11th century, and his courtiers were flattering him excessively. And he responds by asking, am I divine? And he walks to the shore and says, stop. And of course, the waves, they kept coming. And he says to his courtiers, only God can stop the sea. I can't. I'm not God. Well, Christ, he can control the sea. And for a brief moment, The kingship was made manifest for the disciples to see. No wonder they ask, who is this? Who can this be? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They knew who controls the wind and the water. And our next psalm speaks of it, Psalm 107. Only God controls the weather. And the result of Jesus calming the storm It leaves the disciples even more frightened. They realize they have met their maker. They are standing before God. Ferguson writes, they had taken Jesus just as he was, and now they were awed to discover who he really was. Every test and trial, every storm in life is another opportunity for you to see the glory of Jesus Christ and to discover his power in your life. Wilmer says, for the Jews, then the people to whom Jesus comes, their great creator God is the one who can still the raging sea, something that as a nation they feared more than almost anything else. He is a God who quells the chaos. Now here is Jesus doing what only God the creator could possibly do, addressing the elements and literally putting them in their place. On the Sea of Galilee, the disciples get it. And that's why they're afraid. The storm was frightening, but it's now dawning on them that their rabbi, their king, is God Almighty. It's in the storms that we really get to know who God is. We see his grace. We see his enabling power that gets us through. We recognize that he is a glorious God. And many believers are able to testify of God's sustaining grace through the trials that they've gone through. And so God's glory is revealed to you when you're at your weakest in a storm and you're trusting in him. Well, fifthly and finally, 
Christ calms the greatest storm in your life. So do not be afraid, but trust him. Jesus clearly has the power to calm storms, to bring peace. But by having Jesus in your life, that does not mean that you will be immune from difficulty, that you will never face a problem. Sadly, there are false teachers out there who teach just that, that with Christ in your life, your life will be happy. You will know success or prosperity or good health. Well, that is far from the truth, and we all know it. We live in a suffering world. Each one of us, we face trials on a frequent basis. And just remember who Mark was writing to. He's writing to Christians in Rome. Christians who were facing persecution from the Roman emperor. They were in the midst of a storm. Any moment they could be captured. Any instance they could be dragged off to their death in the Colosseum. And so this account of Jesus calming the storm was to reassure them. Maybe even rebuke them. We read of Jesus rebuking the disciples by, by saying, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And do you need that rebuke tonight? I do. So often I forget the might of our powerful Savior. Instead, I only see my weakness. Too often I think I am alone in the storm when the truth is that Christ is with me. Jesus is king of his kingdom. He is a powerful king. And so you do not need to fear. You are not alone. Christ is with you. And how important this is for us to hear as we reach out with the gospel to a world that is against us. We might feel weak, but we must remember that we serve a powerful king. You cannot fail because Christ is your powerful king. And his care for you is evident in that he has calmed the greatest storm in your life, which is that of death. And Jesus did that by his own death. There is another story in the Bible that is similar to this one. In that account, there was also a man who fell asleep on a boat in a terrible storm. And that was the prophet Jonah. The sailors, like the disciples, they thought they were going to die. And in both accounts, the storm is calmed. But there's one difference. Jonah did not calm the storm by speaking to it. Instead, he gave up his own life by being thrown into the storm. And the result was the storm was made perfectly calm. But Jonah did not die. He rose again from the sea. And Jesus would ultimately do what Jonah did do. He would throw himself into our greatest storm, which is that of facing divine justice. And the result of this storm is death. This Jesus did on the cross. He took our punishment of death. And on the third day, he rose again. But Jesus is one greater than Jonah. For Jesus' death and resurrection wouldn't just affect him, but all who trust in him. He would take us from the storm and bring us into the peace that we have with God. Jesus cares for you to take you from your ultimate storm. Keller writes, if the sight of Jesus bowing his head into that ultimate storm is burned into the core of your being, 
you will never say, God, don't you care? And if you know that he did not abandon you in that ultimate storm, what makes you think he would abandon you in the much smaller storms you're experiencing right now? And someday, of course, he will return. And he will still all storms for all eternity. In the storms of life, recognize that Christ is with you. Even in the greatest storm, that of death. Christ has calmed that storm. That you will enjoy eternal peace and calm. So don't let the storms of life distract you from Christ. Instead, look to Christ in the storm. For when you see Jesus as your powerful king who cares for you, you do not need to be afraid. You can trust him. Another man who was familiar with storms and the sea was John Newton. He was a sailor. He had been at sea since he was 11 years old. His father, a shipmaster on the Mediterranean, took him aboard and trained him for life on the Royal Navy. But John lacked self-discipline. He got mixed up with the wrong crowd. His bad behavior saw him demoted. And in his early 20s, he made his fortune in the lucrative slave trade, frequently crossing the Atlantic Ocean. He had no interest in anything religious, He lived a very immoral life. But one day his boat hit a severe storm off the coast of Ireland. And that was to prove to be the worst and best night of John's life. John woke up to find his cabin filling up with water. And for nine hours he and the other sailors struggled to keep that ship afloat. He believed it was a lost cause. And so he cried out and he pleaded with God, Lord, have mercy on us all. And he and the crew survived. Well, John never forgot that moment, a moment which changed his whole life. And he later joined the church. He became an influential preacher of his time, as well as a prolific hymn writer. His most famous hymn is surely Amazing Grace. He worked with Wilberforce to end the British slave trade. And during his last year, someone asked John Newton about his health. And he confessed that his powers were failing. My memory is almost gone, he said, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. He faced many storms in life, but the Savior he discovered in that storm on the sea is the same Savior he found to be faithful in every storm of his life. And so Christ is with you in the storm. Look to him in the storm. For when you see Jesus as a powerful king, you know that he cares for you. You do not need to be afraid, so you can trust him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you even for the storms in life. In these storms, you are with us, and you are powerful, and so you keep us secure And you remind us of your enabling grace that sees us through. Lord, we thank you for your care for us, ultimately seen in rescuing us from our greatest storm, that of sin and death. And so, Lord, remind us always to look to you in whatever storm that we're facing, even this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please turn in your blue psalm book to Psalm 107D. And this psalm speaks of the storm on the sea. 
And we read of how the sailors, they cried out to God, and we read of how God changed that storm to a calm. And so in the storms that you face in life, remember to cry out to God. He is with you, and he will enable you to get through the storm. So stand and sing Psalm 170.